So after several months in the book of Hosea, we are now turning to another book. So we went from New Testament in Luke to the Old Testament Hosea, and now we're moving back to the New Testament. And we're going to be looking specifically at a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a young man named Timothy, to a a young pastor, and as we'll see, he was leading a church in Ephesus at a very difficult time. And so this, this letter will teach us many lessons, uh, but at the, at the very heart, at the very root, this letter is about ecclesiology. And some of you maybe know the word ecclesiology, some may not, but it has to do with our, our doctrine of the church, our understanding of what does it mean to, to have a pastor? What does it mean to, to live together as a church? Uh, and, and that is what we have here in this letter. And so if you have your Bible with you, turn to 1 Timothy. And today we're just going to be looking at the first two verses, this introductory material. And... It's interesting to note before I read this that that Paul is following a very similar format, not only that he uses to introduce other letters in the New Testament, but also a very similar format that would have been used at his own time. So this is a a familiar form to the people who would have received this letter, and to Timothy in particular. But what Paul does here is he takes this familiar form of a greeting, and then he pours tons of meaning and significance that will introduce the theme of this entire letter. So again, 1 Timothy chapter 1, I'll begin reading in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Jesus Christ our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace mercy, and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, today we ask that all the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable, would be pleasing in your sight, knowing that you are our rock and our redeemer. And so we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So if you picked up the little outline that's in your, in your bulletin of the message today, uh, you, you may, it could actually make you chuckle in some ways because my outline is the passage itself. Uh, that what we're going to do today is, is just walk phrase by phrase through these verses and look at what God has to say for us here in his word. And so the very first place to begin is with the the first word of this book, and it's the word Paul. Now, most of you probably know who Paul is. He's talked about so often in the church. Um, The first book that we preached together here at Hope was the book of Galatians, But in case you are unfamiliar with the story of Paul, or if you just need a reminder, 
He was originally called Saul. He was from the city of Tarsus. He was part of the, the, the Pharisees, this strict party of Judaism. And he was educated in theology. And, and we're told in scripture that he, was, uh, he learned theology at the feet of a man named Gamaliel. And Gamaliel is actually still reverenced among uh, Orthodox Jews today in rabbinic Judaism. They still study his teaching, a well-known rabbi. And so he learned the Old Testament. But after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, this man, Saul, became one of the most harsh, zealous persecutors of the Christian religion. I mean, you, th you can think of something like the Taliban, uh, someone who is driven by religious hatred to hunt down Christians, put them in prison, and try to stomp out the faith. And we're told in Acts chapter 7, and Acts is the history of the early church, Acts 7, that Saul participated in the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. And then in Acts 8, we read this, that Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Or Paul himself in Galatians chapter 1 says that I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. He was this violent man. But then in God's amazing, remarkable grace and his providence, as he was on his way on the road to Damascus to persecute Christians, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him. He was completely changed. He became a follower of Christ. He was baptized. And then eventually he was transformed from Saul, the great persecutor of the church, to Paul, the great apostle of the church. And even in verse 13 of our text, or later from our text in 1 Timothy, he says, Formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy. And that's what we can remember today when we see the first word in our text, that this is Paul, that he is a man who was changed miraculously. And so often we hear people tell us, no one ever changes. Maybe you believe that about yourself. I can never change. Maybe you believe that about a friend or a family member or an enemy. You say, people can never change. But Paul proves that wrong, that, that we can't change ourselves, but God can change us, that there is hope of mercy, and we always need to remember that for ourselves and for others. But then moving on through our text, he says, Paul, and then he says more about himself. He says, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God. And so first and foremost, he's introducing himself not as someone who simply persecuted the church, but he's introducing himself as an apostle. And not just an apostle, but an apostle of Christ Jesus. Literally, this is someone who is sent out as a messenger from Christ, someone who belongs to Christ. And if you read the New Testament, the word apostle can have different nuances at times. But what, when Paul says 
I'm an apostle, he's speaking in a very technical sense that he is identifying himself as one of the authoritative apostles appointed by Christ himself to lay the foundation of the Christian church. In Ephesians 2, verse 20, Paul says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. And that's one of those verses that I would love to do a a, a Bible trivia exam uh, at a Christian conference and try to trick people and say, what is the foundation of the church? And I think people would say, Jesus is the foundation of the church. Or they would say, the Bible, which is written by the apostles, the New Testament, so that would be close. But, but what Paul says is the foundation of the church is the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ being the cornerstone. And so that's what Paul's saying here, saying, I am Paul, I am part of this apostolic, authoritative foundation of the Christian church. And he says that he is an apostle by the command of God. In other letters, he says, by the will of God. This is not his own idea. He didn't volunteer for the role of apostle. He didn't go to college to study being an apostle that he was very specifically set apart before the foundation of the world, called to faith in Christ, and then called specifically to this work as an apostle, given the commission from Christ to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles, to plant churches, to speak the word of God to people in person under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but then also to write the word of God for the church under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, breathed out by God. And that's what we have before us here in the book of 1 Timothy. We don't have simply the word of Paul, but what we have before us is the word of Paul, the authoritative apostle. Paul speaking the very word of God. Paul bringing to us the inerrant word of God. Someone sent from Christ, belonging to Christ, laying the foundation of the church by the command of Christ. And that introductory idea will be important as we work our way through this book. Because in chapter 1, we'll face countercultural teaching about human sexuality. In chapter 2, we'll face countercultural teaching about the roles of men and women in the church. And there's more beyond that. But what we'll be tempted to do is to say, this is just the opinion of a man named Paul who lived 2,000 years ago. And my opinions today in the 21st century are equally valid. And, and it's up to me to sort of sort whether or not I'm going to receive this or reject this, or I'll take the parts that I like and, and reject the parts that I don't like. But what Paul is saying here is that he is Paul, the apostle by the command of God, sent from Christ, belonging to Christ, laying the foundation of the church, because it is the very word of God. And so that means that for us here, if we reject the authority of Christ, if, if we reject the authority of this book, that we're putting ourselves in a very dangerous place, that to reject what Paul says in this letter is not just to reject Paul, it's to reject 
the authority of God himself in your life. It is to reject the lordship of Christ over you. That if you say, Jesus is my Lord, then our calling is to receive this as what it truly is, the word of God. But now let's continue through this verse in verse 1. He says that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. So there you you see that he's saying, I was commanded by God our Savior, by Jesus Christ our hope. And so look first at that first part, that, that he was commanded by God our Savior. And so that's saying money isn't our savior. Education isn't our savior. Politics isn't our savior. Human strength isn't our savior. So what is our savior? And it's what we read in Isaiah chapter 12. It says, behold, God is my salvation. I will trust. I will not be afraid For the Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Where the Virgin Mary in her famous Magnificat in Luke chapter 1 says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. That that is our confession, that, that we receive the words of this letter Not from a God who is unconcerned with us, but a God who is our Savior. And who's not just a Savior, but is truly our Savior when we take hold of him by faith. But we also receive this this letter by the command of God. And then he says, by Jesus Christ, our hope. And you'll notice that it doesn't say simply that Jesus gives us hope or Jesus provides the things that we hope for, but he says, Jesus Christ, and you could supply the word who, who is our hope. And so our hope is not in a moral philosophy, in a religious system, in a practice of mindfulness. Our hope is in the person of Jesus Christ. And so if you are looking for hope today, the place that you look is Jesus Christ. Look no further than Jesus. And it's one of those mysterious things that if you look for hope in other things, or if if you hope that Jesus will simply give you the things that you want, then you're going to miss out in the end on everything. But that if you look to Jesus himself as your hope, looking to him alone, then out of Christ flows all of the blessings of the Christian life. But if you think about it, though, there's also this subtle testament here to the divinity of Christ. Because there's this pairing that that who commanded him to be an apostle? God, our Savior, and Jesus Christ, our hope. So is God his savior, but then a mere man is his hope? Well, that would fly in the face of the teaching of the Bible as a whole. In the Old Testament, we read this. This is the book of Psalms. Uh, This is Psalm 130, verse 7. O Israel, hope in the Lord. 
For with the Lord there is steadfast, steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. Or Psalm 71 verse 5 says, For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. And so as we think about the, the hope of believers, that our hope is rooted in God alone. And when we read 1 Timothy 1 verse 1, this isn't changing the theology of the Old Testament. It doesn't suddenly pop into existence that our hope is no longer God but a mere human, but instead our hope is rooted in God who took on himself a true human nature in the person of Jesus Christ. That in the, in the person of Christ, he lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death, bore the wrath of God uh, in our place, gives us his life. And so when we find hope, we find it in God, in God in the person of Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man in one person. But now let's continue through our, our passage. So that's verse 1. But now we'll move on to verse 2. And this is where we, we move from the author of the letter to the recipient of the letter. So look there in verse 2. Paul says, To Timothy, my true child in the faith. And so who received this letter from the Apostle Paul? Well, you could, if you have your Bible with you, you could turn to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16 and look at verse 1. This is the record of the Apostle Paul's second missionary journey that would have taken place uh, most likely between about 49 A.D. to about 51 and this is what we read from the pen of Luke describing this missionary journey. He says that Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And so here you see this first introduction of Timothy onto the scene of the early church. Most scholars think that he was somewhere between the age of 15 and 20, so a young man. And it, it appears here that he was already a believer when Paul arrived. And we actually know from the book of 2 Timothy chapter 1 that he learned the faith from his grandmother, Lois, and from his mother, Eunice. And he was taught the scriptures, and, and apparently at this, this young age, uh, received Christ as his savior, and that he was gifted for ministry, and, and Paul recognize that very early. Hey, this is a guy that I want with me on my missionary journey. And so the Apostle Paul then recruits this young man, Timothy, to join him on the mission of preaching the gospel and planting churches around that region. And so 
As we come then to 1 Timothy here, uh, Paul has become the, the spiritual father of Timothy. And you see that, that, that Paul calls him my true child in the faith. And, and that's not to negate God as the true heavenly father, but Paul, by taking Timothy under his wing, by discipling him, by mentoring him as a, as a young pastor, had become his spiritual father, had, had guided him, had taught him what it looks like to follow the Lord, had brought him into a place of, of greater maturity. And just as a side note, I think that's important for us to remember as well. That, 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 what, that's something that we long for in the church. If you are a young, new believer, that you need spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers in the faith. And often you find those spiritual fathers and mothers in the community of the church. But also, if you are a mature believer, that there is actually a calling and a responsibility to disciple younger believers, to take them under your wing. So even someone like the Apostle Paul, who was never married, never had biological children, could become a spiritual father of Timothy. Uh, and, if, and if we're not doing that, if we're not discipling younger, newer believers, we're actually failing in part of our calling as the church together. But here in this letter in, in 1 Timothy, uh, Paul is, is writing to this man after they had parted ways, uh, not because of anything bad, uh, but Paul had been in prison for a time in Rome. He was released. That's where the book of Acts ends. And then he was starting to wrap up his ministry after almost 30 years of serving the Lord. And we know from verse 3 of our text that Timothy was pastoring a church in Ephesus. Maybe there were multiple churches. Maybe there was one church. We don't know. Uh, but he was pastoring, trying to put this congregation in order. And so the Apostle Paul then is, is writing to him around the year 62 to try to encourage him, to strengthen him in his work. And you say, well, why did this man Timothy need encouragement? Paul had been impressed with him over 12 years earlier, he had had a lot more ministry experience. Well, I could see at least four reasons that he needed this encouragement from the Apostle Paul. So here's the first reason that Timothy needed encouragement because he was still relatively young as he pastored the church. That he was probably in his mid-30s. I'm in my mid-30s, so he was probably about my age. So a, a young pastor leading a church. And we still get the idea that he was young from chapter 4, verse 12 of this letter, because Paul says, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. So he's saying, don't give up just because you are a younger pastor leading a church, but be encouraged. But then a, a second reason that he needed this encouragement was because it seems that he was shy and timid by nature. And this is something that John Stott pointed out in his commentary. He said that Paul had urged the Corinthians to put him at ease when he came to them. And in his second letter to Timothy, he felt the need to exhort him not to be ashamed of Christ since God had not given us a spirit of timidity, 
It is not unfair, therefore, to think, him, to think of him as timid Timothy. <laughs> and I, I love that. Timid Timothy. Uh, that, that he needed this encouragement from Paul uh, that, that says, you know, stay strong, don't give up, keep going. But then the, the final reason that I think that, or, or actually the, the third reason, rather, that he needed encouragement was because uh, he was physically infirm. It seems that he had some sort of a, a physical reoccurring problem uh, because in 1 Timothy 5, verse 23, Paul gives this parenthetical statement where he says, uh, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and frequent ailments. And so it's saying, don't just drink water, drink wine too. Uh, but, it, but the reason is he says it's for your frequent ailments, that uh, it, it wasn't infrequent ailments, maybe it was some sort of gastrointestinal issue, probably common at that time. And so he wasn't a, a physically healthy man, uh, which would have made it very difficult then to, to carry out the work of ministry, pastoring this church. So he needed encouragement. But then the, the fourth and final reason that he needed this encouragement was because he was leading the church at a very difficult time of transition. And it was this time where the church was transitioning from the the apostolic age, the period where the church was being led by the living apostles themselves who knew Jesus Christ in the flesh, to the, the post-apostolic period, to the period after the time of the apostles, where instead of having living apostles with us, we have the writing of the apostles. We have the written word of God. And that by the time this letter was written, a good chunk of the New Testament had already been written. It was being circulated in the early church. But certainly by the end of Timothy's life, the, the entire New Testament would have been written. It would be completed. Uh, again, it's not that every church would have every single book of the New Testament at this point, but the church was, was sharing this authoritative canon of the apostles amongst themselves. And so there was this shift of, of what does life of the local church looks, look like, where it's not the live teaching of the apostles, but the, the teaching of the scriptures as the foundation. But it was also a time of transition because persecution of the Roman Empire was beginning to ramp up, this, this violent, brutal persecution. I mean, Paul himself would be beheaded uh, probably no more than five years after he wrote this letter. Uh, Peter would be crucified upside down in Rome at the same period. And, and so the, the, you would look at the church and say that there's no way that this young, fragile organization of believers is going to survive. And then not only were they beginning to face persecution from without, but they were beginning to face this heresy from within. And, and if you study the history of the first 300 years of Christianity, it was heresy after heresy after heresy arising among believers trying to destroy the divinity of Christ, saying, well, Jesus really wasn't human. He was only God. He only appeared to be human. Or, oh, Jesus wasn't really God. He was just human. And, and so there were all of these false ideas starting to spread in the church. And so you look at this and you say, humanly speaking, Timothy is a totally wrong person that you would want at the helm of a church. 
he's timid, he's weak, he's young, he's sick. Uh, this is not the man that you would select to lead an organization into the future. But since God works in weakness, this is the man that God had placed. And then thankfully, God provided this encouragement from Paul to Timothy. But then you can fan out from there because it was encouragement to Timothy. But Paul didn't intend this only to be read by Timothy as a private correspondence. But he wanted Timothy then to take this letter to teach it to other pastors in his presbytery, to teach this to other um, members of his congregation. To say These are the words of the Apostle Paul teaching us what it looks like to to be the church in this age as the age of the apostles comes to a close. And it would have been a great encouragement in their understanding of the local church. But that means it's also encouragement to us here as well. It's encouragement to me as a young, timid pastor who needs God's encouragement from his word. And I hope that it's an encouragement to you as well as we work through these things, because it's teaching us what is the church at its most fundamental level. But then as we wrap up together, let's look at the, the final words of the text. It says, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. And just as a, a side note, isn't it amazing how much he talks about Jesus in two verses, that he's an apostle of Jesus Christ? Uh, it's by the command of Christ, our hope. Uh, that he, it's all coming from Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so it's, it's completely saturated with Christ as the, as the foundation. But he says, coming from God the Father, from Jesus Christ, is grace, mercy, and peace. So look first at grace, that this is the, the foundation of the Christian religion, that it is this unmerited favor of God, that, that our salvation is not based on what we have done, what we have earned, but we receive it freely as a gift, that the gift of God is eternal life, that by grace we have been saved through faith. This is not our own doing. It is a gift of God. That is grace that we receive. That's what Timothy needed to hear, what we need to hear. But then second, Paul says it's not just grace, but mercy. And sometimes people will say that, that grace is getting a gift that you don't deserve, Mercy is not getting a punishment that you do deserve. But it, it is strange in some ways that Paul adds mercy in because in nearly all of his other letters, except this one in Titus, he says grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But here he adds mercy. And we don't know exactly why, but I, 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 I really appreciated what Matthew Henry said in his commentary I, on that point. He says that ministers have more need of God's mercy than others. Ministers need more grace than others to discharge their duty faithfully. They need more mercy than others to pardon what is amiss in them. And if Timothy, so eminent a minister, must be indebted to the mercy of God and need the increase and continuance of it, how much more do we ministers in these times who have so little of his excellent spirit? And I, and I think that that's true as a minister, that, that we, we need more mercy to cover our failings and our, and our weakness. But we all need the mercy of God constantly. We're, we all need to be reminded of it. 
But then the, the third and final reality from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ here is peace. And this is saying that it, it's peace that we get with God, that we were enemies of, with God because of our sin. But Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That it's this very objective end of hostility between us and God, being brought into relationship with him through Christ. But then it also says, you could say that it's peace that we have within, this inner subjective peace, that no longer do we feel the guilt and the shame of our sin, but we are washed clean in the blood of Christ. We have a new identity. We are adopted into the, the family of God, that we have peace within. And then hopefully that peace with God, that peace within begins to flow out to the world around us as well, that we begin to see the reconciliation of relationships with others, the, the breaking down of, of artificial divisions like race or class, uh, and, and the coming together of people from tribe, tongue, and nations all around the world to worship God as, as king, to to see the forgiveness of one another, reconciliation, being changed like Paul himself was changed, and then receiving those who once were our enemies as brothers and, and sisters in, in Christ. But that, that's not complete. That's not perfect in this life. Uh, but we do get a, a picture of that peace here in this meal today, that what we see here is a, a picture of the peace that we have with God, that when we come before him, we enjoy a a meal of celebration because of the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. And that we enjoy here uh, a celebration of inner peace, that, that we don't come to this meal in a sense of, of guilt and shame trying to earn our way to heaven, uh, but we come here, uh, yes, if, we if we're holding on to enmity against someone else, it might be appropriate to wait to not take this today to to do business with that person before you come. But what we do, though, is we, we bring our guilt, we bring our shame, we say, no, I know that in Christ that has been nailed to the cross. And I, and I know that Jesus is my hope, that my hope is what is symbolized and sealed here in this meal, that, that what I need is Jesus, and what flows out of Jesus is then forgiveness of sins, is adoption to God's family, is eternal life, that it all flows out of Jesus and union with him and life with him as the foundation of all the blessings that we enjoy. But then we also see peace with each other, that we come as the body of Christ together to this meal, reminded that we're not individual believers, but believers together, this breaking down of division between one another as the church together. Now, if you're here and you've never repented of your sins, trusted in Jesus for salvation. We're, we're thankful you're here. We'd encourage you to wait, to not take this, uh, that it would be a form of hypocrisy. It would be spiritually damaging for you. Uh, but if you are one who has repented, trusted in Jesus for salvation, has made that public by being baptized or being part of a church that preaches the gospel, then we, we encourage you to come. You don't have to be a member of Hope Church, a member of a Presbyterian church, but one who is resting in Jesus for salvation as your salvation, as your hope, as the source of grace and, and mercy and peace in your life, and really one who can profess the faith that we hold using the words of the Apostles' Creed. So if you look to page 7, uh, we'll read this profession of faith together 
And it's called the Apostles' Creed, uh, bec not because it was written at the time of the Apostles, uh, but because it was a, a summary of the, of the teaching of the Apostles. And so in that early turbulent period of the church, they, they, people started to say, well, this is really what the Bible is saying. It's saying Jesus isn't God. It's saying the Trinity isn't real. And, and the church said, no, we, we knew people who knew the apostles. We know their teaching. And we're going to summarize that teaching in a, in a short creed that, that summarizes the biblical teaching about God and salvation. And that's what we have here in the Apostles' Creed. So let's read this together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.